Every fall my so-called friends ask why I seem to lose my mind Get up at dawn and harness on these renaissance rags of mine Like a minstrel lord with a lute and a sword I play the fool for those Who just like me make a choice to be an idiot I suppose Wear griffin bowl and a horn cup hold some brew that smells of grain and hemlock glass while the pirates slash a tune to bruise your brain Well, I don't like meat and my fingers bleed and the dust gets up my nose But I like being free and that makes me an idiot, I suppose When the leaves turn red and my aching head begs to be left at home I fly in a rage to the white heart stage to sing for you alone And the day grows long and I sing this song to the best friends anyone knows Who just like me make a choice to be an idiot, I suppose And Jean is there with her braided hair and a cider and a rose And the Scotsman's kilt gets an awful tilt when the strumpets tie their bows Well, I think I was born John Barleycorn with a guess in troubadour clothes Cause I like being free and that makes me an idiot, I suppose well, welcome to this edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I am your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we are listening to John Durant sing the song, The Idiot, that he wrote and performs about his 23 or so years in the Renaissance Fairs out of uh, Crownsville, Maryland. And we have John on the phone today. He's a very good friend of mine, and I am looking forward to speaking with him about his musical journey and also about the movie Gettysburg and how he contributed to that. John, are you there? I am here. Thank you, Todd. It's good to hear your voice, and uh, I hope you and uh, Carol are all well and staying healthy in this time of strife. It is a very difficult and unusual time for us, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we're doing well here. Good. Um, we're, we're sitting in, a, of course, uh, in the house. We're sheltered in the uh, trying to enjoy um, a little, you know, family time. Sometimes I get a little too close, though. You know what that's all about. I do, but I do know, because I've been to your home and I've driven by it many times in my real estate meanderings, and you have a fantastic view out the back of your house. Yes, uh, we are blessed uh, to have a lovely view of the Middletown Valley. And uh, And sunsets. And sunsets, yes. We have sunsets. Very beautiful. So uh, thank you for playing that old song. It brings back some really interesting memories for me. And uh, can I give you a little background on that? Oh, please do. Yeah, uh, it's funny because that was back during the years when I was performing, uh, you know, uh, as the troubadour in certain environments. And, of course, um, I was actively involved with the Maryland Renaissance Fair. I had a character name by the name of Jonathan Strum. That was a rather ribald character. He was he, he thought all the women loved him and, you know, he thought he was very smart, but he's actually, you know, played kind of a fool. Uh, and the the whole idea about, you know, having a character and a name that is separate from your own name at the Renaissance Fair is to develop relationships. And uh, everybody sort of has a way of working with each other. And we had other entertainers. Uh, one of which was mentioned in the song, his name was Richard. And um, so when he, uh, I hope that didn't interrupt you, that was a little call coming in, but um, Richard was, a, he was also a troubadour. And uh, I mentioned him in the song as well. But the, the, let me go back to the beginning of how I got the idea of the song though. Um, during, my, during that time, I was also in corporate world. I was a vice president of a small company called ATM Mid Atlantic, which is a, technical rep firm and some of the people that I work with and you know some were, who were visitors from out of town some who lived in this area uh, were usually corporate people not a lot of them engineers some of them are uh, executives in different businesses and uh, we um, you know we would have these luncheon discussions or you know um, offline discussions where we weren't working about on uh, technical issues and somehow one day the uh, this, the subject came around to Renaissance fairs, and this one fellow I was with, who was sort of high up uh, level, high level executive, he he had, he just brought out this you know little phrase. He said, "I think all those people are idiots." <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "I said," and he didn't know I played a Renaissance fair, you know, and he, he wasn't he wasn't just jabbing at me; he was just making a jab in the air. And I thought, 
hey, I can use that. I can, that's, that's something I can really work with. And so I just use that whole aspect of it. And there happened to be an existing song by Stan Rogers that was called The Idiot. And it was a completely different treatment of the words. It was the same tune that you're hearing today. But um, I got permission from um, Ariel Rogers, his, his widow, to use the Stan Rogers song and rewrite it in my way for the Renaissance Fair. The, if you go and listen to Stan Rogers' version of the, and I highly recommend it, everybody listen to it. It's a wonderful song, but it's about a fellow who uh, went out west from where he lived in Canada. He went out to like Saskatchewan or something, and he was working in the in the oil fields and the and the gas fields. And he talks about the gas fires burning and the you know and the smell of the smoke and the smell of the oil and everything, and how he would go out in the middle of the way away from the gas fires and stand there and get some fresh air and look back and, you know, and he said, uh, and he wouldn't take the money that the government was giving out, which he could have gotten for free and just stayed home. And he says, I guess I'm an idiot, I suppose. And that's, you know, that was his theme. And uh, it's a sort of a heart. It touches your heart because it's talking about a guy who really wants to work and he wants to give his family a good life. And he's willing to do it even at risk of his own life, uh, which is what they, those people in the oil fields go through. And uh, so I just kind of took that whole essence of the song and started rewriting it. And um, I put in places and people and um, situations which I thought were um, which, which are real, you know, in, in places like the White Hart Tavern. And uh, I mentioned a fellow by the name of um, Griffin in there now i don't even know his real name he's just a sort of a dark and foreboding fellow he's about a foot taller than i was kind of a hulking guy and he dressed in black and uh he had this character that he wanted to you know he was just a patron he wasn't uh, anybody in the fair itself he just came every week but he was so faithful to me and he was so friendly he would always want to buy me a drink or he'd want to stay at you know when i was performing and i said you know, you don't get those kind of fans everywhere. So I said, I'll tie him into the song. So I put where Griffin bold in a horn cup holds some brew that smells of grain. And, you know, of course, the Pirates or the Pirates Royale, they're the ones who are uh, sort of a mainstay of all the pirates in the in the Renaissance business today. I mean, they, they're well known all over the world now. And uh, like uh, and there's a few other few people like they're like um, Karen and um Randy, both of them are attorneys, but they're very faithful. When they came to the Renaissance Fair, every time I was playing on stage somewhere, they'd be right in the front. You know, they they were just they just love what I did, and uh, I said I got to give them a tribute. So I wrote this wrote them into the song as well. So and Richard, of course, I mentioned Richard. Richard fights for the minstrels' rights, but he don't know rights from wrong. Um, uh, Richard uh, Follett, uh, great great entertainer. Uh, and uh, wonderful guy. I actually had his birthday yesterday, I, I, I'm, and um, I sent him a nice, a nice little note to wish him well on his 60th birthday. So that's just kind of the essence of where the song came from. Um, have you ever heard the original song, Todd? I have not. I didn't realize. I think you had told me years ago where it came from, but I haven't hadn't remembered that, so I'm going to go and look it up after we, we chat okay. so I can get to hear it, but... The um from from listening to your version of well it's I I take that as your song even though the the music is Stan Rogers but right. the, the I get a real feel for what the Renaissance Fair is like because I've never actually been to one Carol and I've chatted about it but it just doesn't seem to end up coming out that way but I get a nice sense of what it must be like there you did a great job with the song well thank you I. I... I wanted to make sure that it gave uh, a little bit of the um, essence of what it's like to get dressed up early in the morning. I mean, before even before a light and you're, you're getting into your, all your clothes that you wore the day before the, or the last week or so. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's not the freshest uh, you know, thing to wear. And um, then you're, you're out there uh, and you're eating dust and um, you're um, trodden along in the, in the heat sometimes when it's uh, in, you know, you, you're sweating, you're, your glands off uh, trying to perform, you know, in a bar setting or something like that. But it was, it was fun. I mean, I've, I don't mean to make anything less than uh, a great deal of fun to do it. It was a great honor to do it too, because uh, there are a lot of folks uh, in this area, in this country uh, who would just love to have a chance to be a, 
a Renaissance uh, featured performer. And, uh, and you mentioned that the timing, actually it was my 25, 25th year when I ended. And um, they, um, they have kind of a rule that if you're, uh, every year you go up on your salary, you know, they give you a little boost. And um, after 25 years, I think I was getting too expensive for them. So <laughs> they, they, they let me go. But, uh, but I, it, was, it was time. It was time for me to, to, to bow out and give somebody else a chance. And uh, I, I had a great run. I enjoyed the Renaissance Fair. And I still love those folks. Uh, I, I still keep in touch with all of them. And, uh, and um, I had a great honor. Uh, somebody pulled the words off the song. I, haven't, I never printed out the words, but somebody sat down and, and just pulled the words off the song. And it ended up on the, on the homepage of the Renaissance um, what was it? I've forgotten what it's called. Renaissance Home or something like that. One of the big Renaissance fair. Uh, it wasn't for a single fair. It was like the a, a website where you could go and look at all the fairs. And um, this guy pulled us and he put that was the opening thing of your uh, of the page. It was was just words to that song. The whole song was on there. How cool Only is that? Thing, yeah. Yeah, really cool. And uh, the only thing he got wrong, he said, um, he said, while while Randy drinks, and I, I put uh, my Karen's, uh, well, Randy, I put in Randy brings, while Karen sings the words to all my songs. Now it's uh, nobody quite understands that, but Randy was always bringing something for Karen. I mean, he he was he was a uh, he was almost like a runner. You know, every time I'd see him, he'd be coming up with a whole bunch of food in his hands, you know, and and drinks and such, and he'd be coming from some one of the, the, uh, the pay, you know, the places where you could buy food and such. And he'd be running up and, and there'd be Karen sitting there. So Randy brings while Karen sings the words to all my songs. And uh, it was, it was just a, an honor to put all those folks in there. I wish I could have put more in. There was, there were dozens of people that I, I dearly, dearly uh, love that are, I could have put in that song if I had four or five more verses to, to write. But uh, now anyway, how did... that wasn't a, how yeah. did you get started doing Renaissance fairs? That's an interesting story. Um, I went back to, uh, it goes back to when I was performing at a wine festival in Columbia, Maryland. Um, and it was back in the 1980s. And um, a fellow was there who was the, at that time, he was the director of entertainment at the Renaissance Fair in Maryland. And he gave me his card and he said, you know, you really should come and audition. Everybody auditions. They don't, you, you don't just get a spot, even if you're famous, you know, you come and you play and, and, and there's a board of people that listen to you. So I show up in my colonial outfit, which was completely wrong, um, wrong period, you know, and I try corn hat and everything else, which is uh, so I came out and I, I did some um, I did a couple of colonial songs and I did a, a drinking song or two. And um, I thanked them. And uh, of course, they, they, they explained to me, you know, you're not in the right period. And I said, well, I don't have a costume for that period. And they said, well, you're going to have to get one if you play here. And uh, so the first year uh, they did hire me. And that was a, it was a, for a um, non-stage performance. They have what they call street performers and they had stage performers. And that first year I had no stage appearances. All I did was what they, and what they would give you is like a little, uh, lane, and you would come from the, this end of the lane to that end of the lane, usually about a, a 50 yard where, where you can just uh, stroll back and forth and kind of greet people. And um, that was, it, I love street. I really did. I think that was probably the, the most fun I ever had at the Renaissance Fair. And even after I became a stage performer, I would still do street when I found out there was no street being covered. I'd go down and, and do something like Stub Toe Lane, which is right around the corner from the the White Hart Pub. And there was a lot of little shops there and people who were uh, who were doing um, artwork and uh, sculpture and uh, metalwork and stuff like that. And a lot of times they didn't have anybody to play down there. So I would go down and, and uh, I knew they would enjoy it. And, and I would try to find somebody who looked like they needed music usually it was a of somebody who was being pushed along in a wheelchair or a little child who wasn't very happy or something get down on one knee and just sing to them you know it's it's it was and it was a moment that when you do that and you do it sincerely 
the whole whole street will stop to watch. And it was it was such a magical moment to do that. And it was, I, I treasure all those moments when I, at the Renaissance Fair. And uh, I'd love to do them again. I, I, I still do it when I when I play in some of the other fairs. I play at uh, Waterford Fair every year. And that's definitely a part of the Waterford Fair routine is to go and play for the children and play for the folks who are who are not very mobile, maybe some older folks who are there and that sort of thing. Well, you know, it's when you mentioned that your stage name for there was John Strummer, Strum, and right. th- then it made sense to me why your son John calls himself Johnny Strum. Right. That's that really it, it, it kind of had a life of its own after me. I didn't realize that it would go on. Uh, I, I played Jonathan Strum and it was J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N Strum. Um as you know, for that character. And of course, my son was coming along in music and towards my last five years at the Renaissance Fair, he was of age to where he could come up and play right along with me. And um, so we did a lot of um, my sets. We did, he would come up and either play mandolin behind me or play guitar and play harmony, uh, sing harmony and that sort of thing. So he got his own identity through that. And by playing as Jonathan, um, uh, son of Strum is what he called himself. Instead of Jonathan Strum Jr., he called himself son of Strum to make it sound more medieval, you know. And so the son of Strum brought on its own character. And of course, after I left the Renaissance, he continued to be son of Strum. And then that was, uh, and then and people were also calling him John Strum Jr. And, um, then there was another period when he and another fellow, um, Chris Marshak and Johnny, my son, they would go and perform, and they called themselves the Brothers Strum. And it, it got to be, it was got to be <laughs> ridiculous. Oh, wow, the Strum thing was going everywhere. And he, John, still maintains a, a Johnny Strum identity online. If you go on Facebook, you can still find Johnny Strum on there, and which is kind of cool. Uh, I'm glad to see that name lives on. Look what you started. <laughs> a real problem, yeah. Well, speaking uh, of starting, let take me back. How did you start playing music or getting involved in music originally? How old were you? How did it happen? All that kind of good stuff. Oh, uh, that you know, when, when of course I was in high school, I um, I was during the folk era. You know, when the Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary and uh, the you know all the those people were coming along. It, it was before even John Denver was around. It was all the early stuff. And uh, I, I, my mother, I had to go back a little bit here. My mother always wanted me, me to be a musician. She played the piano in the church and she wanted me to be a piano player. And she sent me to a piano player, a piano coach there in Norfolk, Virginia. And his name was Jack Neblett. And Jack was a wonderful guy and a very sweet guy, but he um, he tried his best to help me. You know, we had a, had a book and I was trying to learn merrily we roll along or something like Mary had a little lamb, that type of thing. And I did not want to learn. I, I had no motivation to to go and be a musician. And after about five lessons, uh, Jack went to my mother, says, Mrs. Durant, you're you're wasting your two dollars and fifty cents a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I, that shows how old I am. <laughs> she said, uh, why don't you buy him a baseball glove? He's never going to be a musician. So, uh, you know, she was very, she was just heartbroken over that. She wanted me to be a musician so badly. And so I got into high school. And of course, that's when the folk era came up. And I saw all these guys playing guitars and singing folk songs. But more importantly, I saw the girls watching the guy play. And I said, wow, look at that. And some of these guys weren't that good looking. And still, the women were really just attracted to him. So I, it was um, the year after I graduated from high school. I went to Old Dominion uh, College. It was, uh, wasn't a university yet, but I went to Old Dominion. And I was befriended by a fellow at the Baptist Student Union who ended up being a minister later. Um, his Bob, name was Bob Hetherington. And Bob said, I'll teach you to play and I even have another guitar. So he helped me um, learn to play the guitar and because he wanted somebody in his folk group. He, he was he and his girlfriend, Judy, and he wanted another voice. And he knew I had a good voice. He'd heard me sing in the choir there at the, at the Baptist Student Union. He said, 
why don't you come and we'll do folk music together? And I was just, wow, you know, he's going to trust me with this. And uh, so I, I learned one song. I think I learned uh, Tom Dooley uh, to play that on, because only two chords, you know, we learned to play Tom Dooley. And then I learned, uh, uh, if you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. You know, that was, there's old songs like that. And we got a whole re- series of those old folk songs down pat and we started playing for frat parties and uh, little gatherings and they, they had like a, a a lot of little coffee shop type things and most of them didn't even have amplifiers you just stand in the middle of the room and play and um we we got to where we had a pretty good thing going it was actually we were getting a little bit of, of traffic with what we we're doing and some people were coming out to see us and everything and then of course um we we discovered that we needed sound equipment and uh, then we got into the the, carrying these huge columns around i'm sure you know remember those things right oh yes i do (laughs) kill you you know and uh and we played at all kinds of places we were in down down the norfolk area we played in places like yorktown and newport news and uh over in uh, suffolk and portsmouth and of course downtown norfolk and virginia beach and uh of course, I think you've, you've heard the story. I think you've probably read the story about my experience after I, this was after I'd left the group with Bob and I, how I was at this little place called the uh, Buccaneer Lounge, which they nicknamed the Buccaneer Lounge. And um, I was there when um, playing music that night when uh, the band and um, the, um, the great um, Roger, oh, okay, I'm blanking his name all of a sudden, Roger Miller came in and he uh uh they 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 wanted to hear Marjorie Miller songs I didn't even know who it was at first and I kept sending up ten dollar tips until I figured out that I was being conned into singing for Roger Miller uh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so uh it was, it was one of the greatest nights of my life honestly but uh, to, to realize that I was being paid to play for Roger Miller but uh it was it was a joke on him because he did he came up he was the last one that came up to give me a tip and he gave me a 20 he said young man please play anything but Roger Miller this time <laughs> so <laughs> but uh but, but those you know all of us who are in the folk business or who are in the music business have stories like that. You can go back. I'm sure you go, you've got many, many stories yourself about uh, things that have happened to you in weird places and such like that. I, I, I don't know how my wife ever put up with it. I really don't. Uh, it was, it was the, it was the strangest thing uh, that, um, you know, and um, uh, there was a fellow who wrote a song or a parody of the song, um, um, would you like to swing on a star? Have you heard that? Uh, is, is, I have not heard parody? the parody. I don't think, or oh, if I God. have, I've, I've just forgotten it. We need to get that one on your, on your site sometime. I'm, I'm not going to reveal what it says, but it's it, basically the line says, would you like to play the guitar? Ah. And it, it goes into, it goes into all the stuff that happens when you're a, a musician, like we are, you know, like traveling in the car, thinking you're a big star, you know, all those things that they put together. <laughs> So, uh, but, you know, I, I think everybody out there who plays the guitar should hear that one. And uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy so you can play it for a future, future audience. So doing folk music, because you and I are about the same age, because when I started, it was the Hootenanny time and, uh, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary and everyone. And my brother got a guitar and I got a banjo and my younger brother, we couldn't find a stand-up bass. So he had a, a very inexpensive electric bass. But probably a month or two after that is when the Beatles hit and nobody wanted a folk singer anymore or a banjo player. <laughs> That's so, right. So how did you transition from folk music to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and stuff? Or did you stay right with folk music? I never gave it up. I mean, it was funny, but it seemed like there was a, a crowd of people or a whole um, society of people around me that still loved the folk music and uh we continued on with that, and I think it kind of flowed in a direction like uh, I think that's when John Denver came in, and uh, there was a lot of um, there was early in the career of uh, Gordon Whitefoot and um, Chris Christopherson mm-hmm. and uh, some of these others were they were paralleling the the Beatles, and um, I did love the Beatles. I loved listening to them, but of course they were highly produced 
band, you know, and I, I, I never wanted to be a band. And I, so I, I kind of reflected back to the singles and, the, you know, the soloists like the John Denver's and the Gordon Lightfoot's uh, at that time. And, uh, and as time would pass, you know, I discovered new, new performers that I loved in that, in that genre. And I just stayed with it. Um, Stan Rogers, um, who um, wrote The Idiot, um, became um, one of the greatest moments of my life when I discovered him. I, um, there's a song that Stan wrote um, called that Mary Ellen Carter. I put it on my It's a wonderful album. song. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was driving from, um, I was driving back from Charlottesville where I played it uh, as a, at, at a festival there in Charlottesville. I was on the road on a Sunday night and Mary Cliff was on an old show, you know, 88.5. And, she said, "There's a fellow who just passed recently, and she told the story about how how he lost his life, and and she said, uh, he said, I'd never heard of this guy, and so she says, um, here's one of his best songs, and uh, she played the Mary Ellen Carter, and I literally, Todd, I got so emotional, I had to pull the car off the road. I was just, it was just tearing me up, and I'm tears are coming down my face, and I'm thinking, why have I not heard of this man before, you know? And here he is, he's already gone, and I'm thinking." Um, this is just a, an incredible artist and a great, a great poet. And uh, that's the things that almost always influenced me. And uh, of course, we, um, you know, all the people who are great poets, um, you know, were, were so, um, so I loved over the years, you know, and of course, we just lost the one, one of the great ones, you know. That's and, right. Uh, just yesterday. Yeah. And uh, it, uh you can say his name if you want to. I'll, I'll, John Prine. Mm-hmm. John Prine, of course. And uh, John, uh, I never met John. We got to see him at uh, Strathmore, but I never got the chance to meet him. So, and you know, we're all getting older, and uh, some of them are going to go like that, but we're really sad to lose John Prine. So, um, anyway, I don't want to go on a, not a negative slant with you. What other questions you have? Well, how did you become the troubadour? Because that's kind of your moniker. Right. The Troubadour was born out of um, a, a time when I was doing a lot of uh, work in the new market and uh, um, some of those festivals in those days where you would you know, stroll on the streets and play like that. And I just I did the old uh, 18th century character on those. And um, so the um, I'm trying to think of her name, um, but it was the the lady who was um who um i can't remember her name but it was the gs communications his his wife um had fallen in love with the music i do and uh it was the old great southern and a newspaper and everything like that yeah, the planes right yeah, right well she she was she was the matriarch of the family and she loved the music i did she used to come try to seek me out because she know i'd be playing for the kids and such and do the kids songs so i called myself the troubadour and she said you need to go on this show called the compass show uh, that was you remember, you remember that show the compass show the compass show i do not i remember the troubadour your show yeah, but the Compass Show was like a, an omni thing. Would would do it did a lot of community kind of things and such as that. And um, I went on and I I played on the Compass Show and they they liked what they heard and they said why don't we try one troubadour show where we could do kids we'll put some kids we'll go to Rose Hill get some kids we'll just see how it goes and we'll do one show. So we did one show, and that went well. And we did another show. I think we went to a park and we did another show. And then 340 shows later, wow! I think they finally had enough. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was uh, once a month, and uh, we we just uh, it, it was. Uh, of course, you know this. You get wealthy playing playing for cable. Oh, you absolutely do. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was it was a great experience, and um, I guess because the show was called The Troubadour. You know, I became the troubadour because I was hosting. And of course, at the last few years uh, of the show, we had um, Joe Santoro and the monkey, the little monkador on there. He mm-hmm. was uh, he was my buddy. And uh, Joe is still around. He's he's over in Martinsburg. He has a wonderful little theater over there called Wonderment Puppets. I recommend if you just want to go yourself 
anybody who's listening, go over there. And once this thing is over with, it's closed right now, of course. But once you get a chance, go over there and just watch the show. He puts on a wonderful, wonderful show. And it's like sitting in a hot bath. I mean, you just you know, let all your troubles go. It's just, it's, it's just so much, so much fun. But they're children. It's for children. And it, it brings you back to your childhood. But um, Munkador has been retired. I've been retired from the TV show and everything, but I've held on to the, to the troubadour. So that's, that's my, I'm very proud of it. Well, you, on that show, you were a modern day Pied Piper. I guess I was, you know. Yeah. Cause I remember watching it. I didn't get to see it that often, but I would see it and I'd see these group of kids. And I don't remember how many, whether it was four or 10 following along behind you and you'd be either riding the horse or walking or something. It's, yeah, I, it depended on the particular setting because sometimes we couldn't get but so many children in because it was a small building or something like that. Because we would do a bakery, we'd go to a baseball game, we'd go to um, a fire hall, we'd go to uh, different things every every episode. But sometimes it was um, because it was so, um, you know, maybe a very tight quarters, we could only have a couple of kids three kids, something like that. I don't think we ever had less than three. And sometimes we have a huge crowd of kids because we'd be at a, a, a petting zoo or are putting, uh, you know, at a place where they had pumpkins, you know, and that sort of thing. So we, um, it was, uh, I, I need to count up how many children it was. I'm sure it's more than a thousand children over the period of time. The funniest part happened not, and it was after the show was, had closed or, you know, had gone off the air this fellow came up to me and he said, I was on your show. And this guy just all his time. <laughs> and I said, Oh my God, that's, that's <laughs> wonderful. And he, he had children and he said, he said, are you still doing the show? I'd love to get my kids on the show. And I said, no, it's been, it's been gone for a long time, but it, so, isn't it, it's just so neat, you know? Um, and you remember the old Frederick town mall, right? Oh, of course uh, I do. Sure. Yeah. And I used, that's where I used to do a lot of shopping. I'd go to Bonton and different places there and when I would be in there, of course, I'd be in my civilian clothing and I would see a child walking with a with a parent or something. And all of a sudden their, their finger would come up and point at me and say something about Troubadour or something you know, like that. And they she'd jerk on the arm and say, no, no, that's not him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't my outfit, you know, so it's it's funny. Uh, I, I love I just I love the fact that the children see so well they look at the faces and they're, they're really understood. They, they could see me even if I wasn't in costume, they could tell it was me. Now, when you played on the Troubadour show, which instrument did you use? That's called a lauta, L-A-U-T-E. I've got a few lautas now. I've been very fortunate over the years. I've got a few friends who look out for me to find them. Uh, I've had a couple of guys who look in Germany. That's where they're normally made. And I've gotten a few from Germany. Um, I got lucky and got one of them on eBay, actually. And uh, that's, uh, it was quite a, quite a good find. That particular one was very nice find. But I've got, I've had uh, maybe seven or eight of them over the years. And I've, I think I've given one away. And um, the other one, I think I sold or traded. But um, I think I'm down to five now. But now they're, my, they're, not, they're not a loot, Correct. No, no, it's not a lute. It was that they were invented in the um, in the 1800s, probably about middle 1800s, about 1850, 1860. And someone, I mean, there's a lot of people who 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 will fight me on that. And they said, no, no, it's an it's an ancient instrument. And and I said, no, it, it it's it's just a contrivance of something that happened in the 1940s. I think truly, from what I can tell, about the 1850s is a good time frame for this because. What it was was used. It was used in um, in what they call Volksmarching, and in Germany, Volksmarching is a is a health activity. It's not competition, but everybody would get into their, you know, the leader hose and the leather mm -hmm. pants and the little hats on and everything, and they would and put on their walking shoes and they would walk from one village to another. You know, like um, it was, and it would go. They go through the Alps, you know, and try to make it a up and down and a good experience. Get a lot of fresh air, 
Uh, and at the end, they would have like a festival, a little little gathering, a little party, and they'd have some beer. And, and they give out these little awards, and they're called Volksmarching medals. And some of them were really highly, very beautiful medals. They actually had chains on them and little metal parts and everything. And I think the late, and they still do it, but I think now it's just a little plastic button or a little, little metal button that you get. But um, it's called Volksmarching. And the idea was if you had somebody who bought a drum, somebody maybe brings a squeeze box or a little accordion, another person brings a guitar or a lauta, then uh, you could have music along the way and it keep people's spirits up and their the energy would stay up and they could make it to the other end without being too fit, fatigued. And um, the lauta was nice because I don't, I don't even remember seeing it, but it has a bowl back. It's like a, you know, it's like a rounded back, almost like a, um, what is that modern day guitar that has the rounded back, the uh, ovation, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a wooden instead of the the synthetic back. It's a, a rounded uh, back, which is wood. And people will, wore little capes. And if it started raining and you're playing your lauta, you could slip this under your arm and put it under your cape so that the head stock was down and the body of the lute was against your, you know, the sound hole was against your back and the, and the cape would drape over the back of the lute and or the lauta, I should say. And hold it in place, and um, you could just keep walking even though the, you're in the rain. And um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know how they survived that because I'm sure that the moisture was not a good thing. If you're, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but these are t- the Germans made beautiful instruments, and they were very durable. And um, the one I play, the one I love the most, was made in the 1880s. It was made, um, uh, and the reason I know that is I had it restored by a fellow in Boston. A uh, wonderful guy, and he never charged me anywhere near what he should have charged me. I think he was more curious about the instrument. He'd never seen one before, and he said, I'd like to map it. So he took it, and he, he took it all apart down to the just the finest pieces. And uh, he I guess he laid it out, and he measured each thing or photographed it and everything, put it all back together. And when he took it apart underneath the – right very close to the sound hole um, – if you on the back of the wood, not on the front, on the back, there's a signature. It says Gunter Punzel, 1880. Wow. And we looked looked him up, and he was from Bremerhaven, Germany. And uh, um, it's I think the family is still making those. You know, the, there is a Gunter Punzel to, alive today, who's probably his grandson or great grandson or something. But they, the, all these people who made these these type of instruments. The same as with the cuckoo clocks and all the very fine German carved instruments and carved furniture. It wasn't just one person who made it. It was a, a son, a grandson, a father, a grandfather. Maybe four generations would work on this thing. And the fine work, you know, the hand carving and the very beautiful ornate work was always done by the elder. And he would be the one whose signature would go into the instrument because it was the final work that was done on it. But a young man could learn how to smooth the, the slats to go in the back or, you know, just cut the wood out. And then the next person would make a little more refinement to it. And maybe the fitting of the wood would be the father and maybe the final final fitting and carvings and everything would be the, the grandfather or the elder of the family. Um, I, my goal one day before I go is to go over to Germany and actually see some of these places where that make these, they still have them. There's still families that do them. And according to what I have heard from one of my friends in Williamsburg who did this, you can actually see these moles, these blocks that were cut out. And these things are two and 300 years old where they actually used to shape the wood and they were handed down from father to son to grandson right on down. And these are the original things that they use to make these instruments. And they make all kinds of instruments. They make real, you know, the regular guitar like we know. And they make um, uh, mandolins and uh, they make uh, even as big as big things as big as bass fiddles and stuff like that. Of course, their violins now are getting to be very precious. They're not like uh, Italian um Stradivarius, but they still are very good. But um, that was, um, it was a real honor to find out about that instrument. And I I play it um, with great reverence um, when I perform because I know that a lot of hands and a lot of love has gone into that instrument before I even touched it the first time. Oh my gosh, yes. Mm -hmm. And now that it's been restored, and one, the one compliment that the fellow did, uh, this fellow up in Boston gave me, he said, 
when he got it all apart, he realized that everything was was in good shape. All the all the pieces were still straight and everything. What had happened is the glue had let go in certain areas and things had kind of brought dropped out of the slot a little bit. and It was all out of alignment. He said he put it back together. And he said it was like putting a German engine back together. It was so well made and so precisely cut that it just went right back together. He didn't have to do anything to fiddle with it too much to get it to fit. And he said he barely had to touch up the, the action on it once it was put back together. He said it was like it was a, it was in, it cut to the exact right dimensions. And if you just put it together properly and glue it properly, it was going to come back. He said he had to make a very, very minor adjustment just to get the intonation right. But he said it was almost perfect when he went, when he finished it up. Now, is a luta tuned like a regular guitar? It's pronounced lauta. Oh, lauta. I'm sorry. Right. So, and and you can tune it any number of ways. I've seen they actually have five string lautas, and I play a six string. So that the and and of course the the spacing on the on the frets uh, is uh, is is correct for guitar. So I play it as a guitar, classical guitar. I play classical guitar strings, um, and uh, they are. Um, you know, it's I play um, pro art uh, strings from Diodario. Maybe I'll get get a free set of strings if I mention it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, um, it'd be wonderful if this podcast series reached them. <laughs> but I, I, you know, it, it's uh, this classical instrument. You don't put steel strings on it. Um, uh, it's uh, and it's uh, it's very gentle. Uh, it can you can get very gentle sounds. You can play it a little hard. You can get some louder sounds. But uh, it's very light. Uh, I'll hand it to somebody who says, what, what, "Can I see that?" And I'll hand it to them. And they go, "Man, that's light. It's like a, it's like it's nothing there." And uh, and it, it's really surprising. And I think that what adds to the volume is because it's so light that it will it rings really like a drum. Well, one of the things that has impressed me, or did impress me, after I actually met you and and was able to see you perform in person was one, the sound of your voice. I've always introduced you as, you know, just as a crooner. You just have a wonderful, your vocal is just wonderful. I always love listening to it. But also your stage presence, you're very warm and inviting to the crowd. What attracted, oh, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I, I stand in your shadow, my friend. Oh, no, you, you are, don't. <laughs> you are, the, you are the, the ultimate uh, host and the ultimate uh, warm guy on stage. I, I can't, I, I have to say that. And in all honesty, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's nicer to people um, who come up and strangers and everything and we do open mics and such. Your introductions are so warm and so inviting, and, and it does everything for the entertainer and the people listening. It's just beautiful. I, I, my compliments to you. Well, thank you, but I, I would rather hide in your shadow behind you. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's go to a different subject here. I mean, it's still musical, but I was amazed when I discovered, and I don't know if you mentioned it on stage one time or whether we were chatting off stage maybe at a function where we were getting ready to play individually. And I had loved the music or the, the uh, movie Gettysburg when I yeah. first moved down here, because I'm from new England where the revolutionary wars, the big war, the civil war was kind of like a, a footnote moving down here. I had to learn a lot about it. And I found, discovered that you did music on or for the, the uh, movie Gettysburg. How did that all come about? Um, it was really Oh, how, how do you how do you say luck, 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 luck? Everything fell into place at the same time. Um, I had a good friend by the name of Bob Blackmore, who was providing um, all the radios and the communications gear through Motorola Corporation to the entire production company, and he 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 rubbed up against everybody there. I mean, and he got to meet a lot of stars and such. And and um, Bob lived up in. Um, near Gettysburg, and he uh, he was in charge of getting all the Motorola radios distributed to different people so they could communicate on all the big big scenes. And uh, he called me uh, one evening. He said, John, I, says, I, I don't know if you're interested in doing this or not. He said, but I've heard there's a problem going on with us. One of the musicians uh, who was, in the, was working with the music director, and he said, his name's David Franco, and he says, if you get in touch with him right away, tell him who you are, what you do. Um, maybe you can have a job there. So I said, 
that's that sounds interesting. So I got the phone number. I called and I got a hold of Mr. David Franco. He uh, um, he was a little abrupt with me. He wasn't, you know, he was, he, he was I, I, after I heard the story later, I heard that he and a fellow from Richmond had had a big falling out. There was a, some some issue about um, how he would be, you know, credited in the movie or something like that. And um, so the whole this whole thing became um, almost a big fallout with them. And I came in at just the right time. So he said, all right, he said, well, come to the come to the hotel, Gettysburg Hotel. And I came and I brought several instruments with me. I brought my lauta. I brought an old guitar, several old guitars. And one of the guitars I had was a 1850s French parlor guitar, which I bought just about a year before that. I just I would I love the look of it. It was a little tiny thing. And I brought that along, too. And I met with him and um, he was like a little Napoleon. I I can't express it any other way than that. But he was really abrupt. And uh, he 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 didn't uh, you know, he, he almost acted like I was in his way or and bothering him too much but I, I i tried to play a little something for him a little, a little civil war music and then i i showed him the instruments i had and and i and, and when i said is are there any instruments that you particular particularly like you know and it, and he he turned and he pointed at the little 1850s guitar he says that one and i knew at that moment he was going to use my for what i was offering you know he 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 kind of indicated that if he's going to use that that instrument he's going to use me but he wanted another musician and he asked for anybody who could play the violin or the banjo or something like that so i got in touch with bo at bo's music and bo said well the only one i know can do all that is alexander mitchell and at that time he was calling himself sandy mitchell but alexander uh called him up he's he was kind of curious and he was a little bit hesitant he didn't know whether i was come some loony that was calling him (laughs) 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 well going to movie what you were talking about what so um we we met we he and i then went up and met with uh david franco uh he brought his fiddle played a little bit for david franco david again treated us like trash almost but then he said yeah me you know well well uh i'm gonna set up a date so about a week later we got this call uh, and then, then we got a, a fax came in and it gave us all the details about where to be at what time to be there. We had to get there at like five 30 in the morning. Uh, it was at Thomas farm in, uh, Fairfield, Pennsylvania. And we ended up coming there and, um, we filmed that day. We, we recorded the music early in the day. We recorded like seven songs. And then on the, then we went to an actual set that they set up on the Thomas farm, which was supposed to be on the battlefield of Gettysburg. And it was um, where they had all the, the union soldiers set up in, a, in an encampment. And they had all the, everybody was there. Jeff Daniels was there. I uh, see Thomas Howell, uh, Paris Kern, all the actors, you know, that would be around. And uh, they put us on barrels and set us in, in, in a scene. And I had no idea whether we were going to be in the scene or not. You know, we just, uh, this camera was there, but we, we had, we had to play air guitar or air fiddle because they said everything that you play, you know, has already been pre-recorded. So they, they gave us a little ear piece and we listened while we played air guitar and air fiddle. And um, so that was, <clears throat> that was our acting. You know, we had to act like we were playing and, uh, and the scene came out later, um, and I we went to the premiere. Uh, Alexander and I went together, and we were flabbergasted because when the scene opens, there's Alexander and I. We just fill the screen, you know, for like 15 <laughs> seconds, and we're playing away. And I'm thinking, I'm backing away from the in my chair, and I'm going, God, you know, look at we're in the middle of the movie, you know. And the next next thing you see is see Thomas Howe, who is the younger uh, Chamberlain brother. And then of course, uh, Jeff Daniels, they walk right past us. And then there's this conversation between the prisoners and such. And we play the song we played, we'd already pre-recorded, which was uh, my old Kentucky home. And we're playing and, and we're, we're air guitaring of this thing the whole time while the interview is going on. Um, and <clears throat> of course, you know, you, if you've ever been on set, you know that they've record all of one side of the conversation this way. They don't, then it's really not a conversation. They have their lines 
and they do their lines in sequence that they're going to say. Then they turn the camera and they look at the Confederates and they do their lines in sequence and then they break them into little pieces and they put them together like a like a jigsaw puzzle. But every time you would see see Thomas Howe, who was the younger Chamberlain brother, I'd be over his shoulder, you know, just sawing away in the air trying to play, play air guitar. <laughs> And it was, I, it was funny. Uh, it was a funny experience. Um, we just, we had a great time. And uh, Alexander and I, Alexander was ready to can it <laughs> after we got in on set because he was really upset with the way Mr. Franco was treating us. And, um, but that was just the way he was. I mean, he was just a, uh, David Franco, I understand, was an assistant direct, music director on all of the spaghetti westerns. You remember A Fistful of Dollars? Oh, yes, I do. A few yeah. dollars. He, he, was all, he, he was responsible for sequencing all that music, you know, and all that stuff. And I said, well, that's, that's not a bad background to have. And so, so um, uh, and we, um, we finished our scene. We got paid. We were under a contract with uh, his company. And uh, we got our money. And then um, a few, maybe a, uh, almost six months goes by, and uh, Bob calls me, Bob Blackmore, and he says, I'm listening to you on my CD. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, I got my CD of the, of the, of the, of the um, second CD soundtrack of Gettysburg. And I had no idea that was even a, a, a soundtrack out there. And uh, he said, yeah, you're, you're playing on there, and you're uh, – um, you got like seven songs on this thing. And it was all that music that we had recorded earlier in the day that was supposed to be possibly used in the movie. But David Franco had decided, well, I've got his name on a contract. <laughs> I may as well use this stuff. So he created a whole album of music. He had all the marching band stuff. He had all the brass bands, a, a pipe, fife and drum. And he had us, uh, all of our songs. And he compiled them together into a, an album. And even though I didn't really get paid to do the album itself, the cost of putting an international distribution together of any album would have been so enormous. If I, if I took my album that I made, the little, that little album that I used for the Renaissance Fair and tried to promote it worldwide, can you imagine what the cost would be? So I, I call it a trade-off. I said, I got paid actually very well because People all over the world have heard that that album and uh, the one the one that Mr. Franco produced, and I'm I'm very happy about it. Now, when you say you recorded the music in the morning and then filmed it in the afternoon, where did you record it? On the Thomas Farm, they had a tent set up, which was a sort of a flat top tent with a with a lot of blankets hanging up around us. So uh, it kind of deadened the sounds outside, you know, so we didn't have any extra stuff. And it had, I was a guy was sitting there with a with a digital recorder that was no bigger than a cigar, cigar box. That I'd, I'd never seen one any anything that small before. Here he's he's got this thing up. And he's got the mic, microphone set up in front of Alexander and me. And uh, there's Mr. Franco counting us down, and we we just he'd count us down, and we start the song, you know. And we and of course we've been practicing for a couple of weeks before we came and we wanted to make sure that we had it, everything down cold and, and it really went well. I mean, all the, all the, all of those takes went almost every one of them went in one take. Um, and uh, I think there was maybe one song we had to do a second take on it just to make sure we cleaned up a, I think I blew a, a, a line on it or something, but it was, a, it was a very interesting. Um, I mean, I guess because we didn't know there was any pressure to, that this was going to end up on a an internationally distributed recording, there was no pressure. We were just sitting there playing the music, you know, and uh, it was going onto this little digital recorder, and there was no big studio or anything else like that around us. It was a, it was just like a, we were sitting in a tent playing music. Well, such fun though, especially in retrospect. Yes, it was, and I, I think if I'd have realized it was going to be put on a a wide distribution album. I would, I would have really had the 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 blood blood pressure had been really up, you know. And I, <laughs> I had take after take after take. I'm sure if I, if I you know, if, it, if I'd known that. But, um, you know, if anybody still wants to hear it, uh, there's you can't buy them anymore because out of out of 
print, but you can get them on eBay. It's called More Songs and Music from Gettysburg. And uh, that that's the second soundtrack from the movie. Well, I have one of them. I can't remember which one I have, but you're on about seven cuts, so it's probably that one. That's the one, yeah. No, and, the original original one was Randy Edelman uh, and all of his music. And uh, Randy Edelman uh, also... Um, uh, he did the um, he did the soundtrack for the last of the Mohicans. Oh yes! Oh, what a, an amazing amazing uh, talent this man has, and you you, you can imagine um, the kind of abilities he has to create the aura uh, around it. Because that the last of the Mohicans to me is was one of the most beautiful music musically and visually i've ever seen it's an absolutely gorgeous movie well and the the book itself was was one of my favorites as a young man so absolutely now you all speaking of books you also did the music for an audiobook i did um there was a, a really nice uh, meeting i had with a fellow at um it was a, it was a place called hunterstown which is just up the road from gettysburg where there was a, a cavalry battle that's really not that well known because the Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg was going on at the same time. But this battle at um, up there at Hunterstown, there was a, a young lieutenant general by the name of Custer. And he was up there with his group. And there was a bunch of Confederates on there. I've forgotten who the Confederate general was against him, but. He was up there fighting the Battle of Hunterstown, and and I guess at one point during the battle, he had actually lost his horse or been his horse had been shot out under him or something. He's on his foot. He's on foot there in the middle of Hunterstown, and there's a bunch of Confederate uh, cavalrymen coming at him with sabers and guns and everything. And a fella from uh, Michigan, fella came up and grabbed him and put him on the back of his horse and got him away from danger. And uh, the story uh, is about this cavalryman who, the, the one who saved Custer, and uh, how he how his life went through this through the war. And it goes out to beyond Gettysburg. It goes to the Battle of Falling Waters in West Virginia, where he lost his life. But um, the fellow who wrote the book, um, Richard Hamilton, uh, is from Phoenix, Arizona. He's written several Civil War books, and I I was there at. Hunterstown while they were doing this this whole festival thing up there and uh, I played this song one of the Civil War songs that um, it's, it's called um, Kathleen Mavornan and in that line of that there's a line in that song that says oh hast, um, oh hast thou forgotten you know and that's that's the name of his book is oh hast thou forgotten um, and he he heard that and he said oh I got it would you would you play that I'm going to be doing a speech here in a few minutes and I'd like for you to come up on stage and play the song. You know, I'm breaking this in my talk and you can play the song for people. So they understand where that line came from. And so I'm, I said, sure, I'll do that. So I came up and um, here he's, he gives me a break and everything. And there's his wife sitting in the front row. And I didn't realize this, but it was, the song is dedicated to his son who lost his life uh, during the Vietnam war. And he was in the Navy and so I'm starting to play this song, and it's 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 you know it's going really well. And I look down at his wife, and his wife is just falling apart. She's crying so hard, and I I start to cry now. And it's just it's a and then he starts to cry. And Richard's starting to cry, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got to pull it back together. And I you know I, I got through it, but I don't know how. And then after that, he said, oh, I've got I've, I've got to do I'm going to do an audio book. You've got to do the music for it, you know. And I said, oh, I will do that. And uh, so we, after a while, we negotiated. And you were kind enough, along with a lot of other folks. We went in the studio there and, and Frederick, and we recorded a, a bunch of different songs. And uh, you were one of the voices that, yeah, that I was, helped me. I was one of the ones who was scared to death and probably, <laughs> and probably off key. But we recorded that at Michael Nunez's studio. We did. Right yeah, down Michael, the street from my been. house, actually, where I live. Really? But the I do remember when we recorded that because you had already done your parts. We were, yes. and you had announced it at the Frederick Coffee Company open mic that you needed male voices for this audiobook. And Ramon, wasn't his name Ramon? Gosh, what was his Ramon. name? Ramon. I love Ramon. Oh, his, his name was Drew, really, but he used to go by Ramon. He had this beautiful, deep voice. And all I remember is when we're trying to sing, and it was... It, 
you had directed us to say that this is sitting around a campfire, basically. Right. You're going to get the good singers. You're going to get people who can't sing at all, but people <laughs> would just join in. So just sing it the way you... <laughs> and his right. voice just boomed oh. above everyone else's. It was wonderful. It was. And it, I, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I would, love to, I would love to thank him for it because that beautiful, raspy sweetness to his voice when he was singing um uh, what was the song i can't remember it was, was uh, that the one about mother no no it was it was the one about um uh it was oh gosh what was it it was about the um hard times yes yep. come again no more and he had this hard times hard yep. times and it came through so beautifully and richard wrote back to me after he got the, you know, the, the copy that we put together and from Mike Nunez and I sent it off to him and he wrote back, he said, who is that guy? I love that voice. He said, tell him, I tell him I love what he did. And, and of course it ended up in the book. So uh, in the audio book and, uh, but um, Richard turned out to be a big fan of, of, uh, of that, that voice and of Ramon. So um, that, that's a good memory for me. I thank you very much for, I thank you very much for being a part of it too, Todd. Oh, it was a, a blast, although nerve wracking and, and, and whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so the movie Gettysburg can still be purchased. I'm sure you can get it on Netflix, but you could also probably find it in DVD. So people can go watch that and get to see you and Alexander Mitchell on screen and go yep. on eBay to try to find the um, the more songs and music from Gettysburg CD, and is the audiobook still available? I haven't heard any much anything much from Richard in a while, but I'm sure it is. He's he's a very very well known writer, and uh, it's, it's Richard Hamilton, and the book's name is Oh Hast Thou Forgotten, and he's out of Phoenix, Arizona. But if, if you Google Richard Hamilton and Oh Hast Thou Forgotten, O H Has Thou Forgotten. Um, it would be, uh, I'm sure you'd be able to pull it up. And he has, a, he has of course, a, a, a hardback copy, has a paperback copy, and he has an audio book. All, all of those are available, I think, on Amazon. Well, once we're able to travel the way we used to in our former lives, which were only a couple months ago, an audio book is a wonderful way when you're on long trips to um, kind of not while away the time because we're supposed to be paying attention to what we're doing, which is driving. But audiobooks are wonderful. That would be a great one for someone to pick up and, and listen to because they get to hear you so. mainly. And then Ramon and maybe a little bit of Todd would bleed in there somewhere. <laughs> you did very well, Todd. Your voice came in beautifully with that. So, Well, now what is your, you have a website. I have a website, which is called troubadourjohn.com. And it uh, right now, of course, all of the schedule or the, you know, the upcoming performances are all on hold. But um, I do a lot of different performances in the area, festivals and, and that sort of thing. But um, a few wineries, um, when they're open, um, Catoctin Breeze is one of the great, great wineries that I play for. They are wonderful folks up there. And, uh, of course, Elk Run, um, the one, Wilsons and uh, how wonderful they are. Of course, we miss Carol. And... Uh, there is a, a few over in Northern Virginia that I play for in a couple of little restaurants now and then. The Dobbin House up in Gettysburg, when they're open, I play every other Saturday up there. And when it's, of course, when they're open. And uh, so, I, you know, I'd love to see some folks come out and uh, enjoy the music with me. I, it's, everything I do is uh, I try to make it a, a, a participation thing if you want to sing along or get up and dance or whatever you want to do. It's fine with me. And on your website, if someone is curious as to what that little parlor guitar looks like, there's a photo of you playing that. It's a little Here bit dark, but you can get a, a feel for it. There's also, I'm not sure if it's a photo or a graphic of you and Alexander sitting, sitting on your barrels, playing your guitar and your, his fiddle with a tent in the background. And then of course there are other photos of you dressed as the troubadour and then, uh, but a lot of fun. So people should, should check out your website. That photo that you're talking about with the tent and uh, everything, that's an actual shot through the camera. Um, what they have a way that they can take stills through the camera. Mm -hmm. And so they took, took a shot through the camera and I got a, a copy came to me, but the copy quality 
wasn't the same. I mean, it was like a, they'd run it off of a, a copy machine or something so right. that the, in, the clarity wasn't as good. And, and of course, it, it didn't transfer real well to the website, but it's it's pretty clear. Uh, it would have been nice if I could have gotten the, the actual true copy clarity that they got through the camera, but it's fine. I, I, I'm glad I have the copy of the picture. Well, I am going to watch the movie again in the near future, since we have a lot of okay. time to do things like that. I did listen to the CD uh, last week in preparation for uh, the show, and I do want to thank you, John Durant. Um, I consider you one of my best musical friends in one little category, and then one of my <laughs> better friends in the, the other category. You've been wonderful to uh, be around and work with musically, and I thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been great. Well, thank you, Todd. Uh, and again, uh, all the great folks in Frederick County who've been kind to me over the years and enjoyed a little bit of my music. And I've enjoyed them, too. There's a lot of wonderful artists in this area that have been uh, influencers in my life. Um, and I, I can't mention each one of them, but uh, a lot of them in, are in fame. And uh, there are, of course, uh, many people who are uh, don't play but who are encouragers and um, they mean a lot to me too so all of that is a is a part of it and uh, i guess i'll i'll just go out when my my time comes i'll go out as a folky i'll probably never make it over to the rock side i think i'm probably too far gone that's quite all right there's a lot year there's a lot of people leading the way in the folk sides and you're you're going to be part of them so all right well thank you todd thank you john great to talk with you hello to everyone at home all right thank you so much Alrighty. Well, that was John Durant, my good friend, known as the Troubadour. If you get the chance, watch the movie Gettysburg and see he and Alexander Mitchell. And maybe maybe we should interview Alexander Mitchell in the future. And also, if you can find the CD, more songs and music from Gettysburg, that would be good to, to get a hold of. And then maybe if you're planning on a long drive, once we can get back on the highways and life gets back to normal, Pick up the Oh Hast Thou Forgotten audiobook by Richard Hamilton. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Wispy Bop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast series for this edition. And we're going to go out with The Idiot again. Thanks so much. Every fall, my so called friends ask why I seem to lose my mind. Get up at dawn and harness on these renaissance rags of mine. Like a minstrel lord with a lute and a sword, I play the fool for those who just like me make a choice to be an idiot, I suppose. Where Griffin Bold and a horn cup holds some brew that smells of grain and hemlock glass while the pirates slash a tune to bruise your brain. Well, I don't like meat and my fingers bleed and the dust gets up my nose. But I like being free and that makes me an idiot, I suppose. When the leaves turn red and my aching head begs to be left at home I fly in a rage to the white heart stage to sing for you alone And the day grows long and I sing this song to the best friends anyone knows Who just like me make a choice to be an idiot I suppose And Jean is there with her braided hair and a cider and a rose and the Scotsman's kilt gets an awful tilt when the strumpets tie their bows. Well, I think I was born John Barleycorn with a guess in troubadour clothes. Cause I like being free and that makes me an idiot, I suppose. For the best man I have ever been is the fool I've been for you. The Wispy Mop Music Radio podcast series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist, if you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. Well, I guess I was born John Barleycorn, but I guess in Renaissance clothes. Because I like being free, and that makes me an idiot, I suppose. Because I like being free, and that makes me an idiot, I suppose.